Amen. Good evening. Thank you for joining us today on this Good Friday. Well, as many of you know, uh, we're going to be planting a garden soon in North Tonawanda over on Summer Street. Some of you guys are even participating uh, in that garden. And uh, kind of part of the idea around what we're doing there is uh, we're working with a couple other organizations, Lumber City Church, Imagine Community Gardens. And what we're doing is we're going to take uh, a lot that's a vacant lot that's kind of an eyesore, just kind of a wasteland. And we're going to plant a garden there, and the idea is to just kind of make something beautiful in the community that the people would want to come to and just would enrich the community. And uh, it's interesting that when God created the heavens and the earth, the Genesis describes him as doing almost exactly the same thing. In Genesis chapter 2, look at what it says. It says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small, small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's no life, no sustenance. The earth is there, but it's just barren land, just dirt. And God creates man, and then he creates a garden. He creates all these beautiful plants and trees for mankind to enjoy. Something that would enrich mankind, that would give him sustenance. We also know that God was among Adam and Eve, the first human beings. That God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve were given the task that they were to keep the garden. They were to work the garden. The word for keep could also be translated to preserve or to guard. And I think part of the role of what they were supposed to do was they were supposed to Keep God's law. They were to upload, uh, uh, the, to uphold God's order and God's creation. To make sure nothing subverted what God was doing. To prevent chaos from coming into the land. But pretty soon, there was a threat to God's order. The serpent comes to Adam and Eve, to, to Eve first. Begins to get her to question things about God. Says, did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Of course God didn't say that. He said you can eat it from any of the trees in the garden except for one. And the serpent promised these Adam and Eve that God is keeping something from you. He's keeping something from you. And you can kind of understand what Eve was thinking because, you know, she sees this tree. It's got beautiful fruit. And she thinks, well, why wouldn't God want me to have that? I mean, he's created all these things. Why would he be withholding this, this uh, blessing from me? And so the question is, is Eve and Adam, are they going to uphold God's law? Are they going to listen to what God has said? Or are they going to listen to the serpent? And so there's this dialogue between them. Whether they're going to trust that God alone could satisfy them. Or they're, they're going to believe that God is holding something back from them. And ultimately, we know that they chose to follow Satan over God. Genesis 3, verse 6 says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, 
and also gave some to her husband. So Adam and Eve, they chose the created thing over the Creator. They chose to listen to Satan rather than to God. They chose to believe that God was withholding something from them. And the results were catastrophic. Immediately they realized they were naked. They started to feel shame. God cursed the ground and judged mankind. He exiled him from the garden. Took him outside of the garden. Put a flaming sword in front of the entrance to the garden. And he said... No, I'm going to keep man out so that he might not eat from the tree of life and live forever. After that, the ground doesn't produce fruit like it once did. The fertility of the land is no longer once what it once was. And now everything that man eats, he has to earn. He has to work by the sweat of his brow in the sun with hard labor. But even after that, It seemed like mankind had this longing for Eden, a longing for a garden, a longing for a place where God dwelt and there was an abundance. God promised the Israelites, the ancient Israelites, that he would take them to the land of Canaan. That was described as being a land that was flowing with milk and honey, a land that was fertile, a land that would be flowing with abundance. And when we think about uh, a garden in our day and age, we often think about gardening Gardening as a hobby. Most of us aren't farmers, and so we do gardening as something that's kind of fun to do, and we use it as kind of a supplement to what we eat. We don't rely on it to eat. If we you know, need something, we can always go to the grocery store. But in the ancient world, a garden was so important because if, you got, uh, if your garden went downhill, it could mean that your family was going to die. And so this idea of having a fertile land of, or, or a garden was something that was pervasive in the ancient mind. So much so that the word for paradise is a word that's from a Persian word that means walled garden. So their conception about what paradise was involved a garden. Thousands of years after Adam and Eve fall, fell, there would be another battle in a garden. It was the night at which Jesus was betrayed. In John 18, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So he enters into a garden. This might have been a walled garden. We don't know. Matthew and Mark call this place Gethsemane, which means oil press. And we see that there's a battle that occurs in this garden, just like it did in the Garden of Eden. If you have a Bible, if you turn to uh, Matthew chapter 26, and we'll pick up what happens with Jesus in this garden. Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, 
So could you not watch with me an hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Note first that Jesus tells his disciples, Stay awake and watch for me. And then he goes away and he prays, comes back, they're sleeping. Wakes them up, says, stay, watch. Watch for the betrayer. He goes away and prays, he comes back, they're asleep again. Wakes them up, goes and prays, comes back, and he's, they're asleep again. What this indicates to us is that Jesus is going to have to fight this battle on his own. He can't rely on the disciples to fight this battle for him. Despite their best intentions, they are going to fail him. In, in verse 56 of this chapter, it says that after Jesus was taken, all his disciples left him and they fled. Just like Adam and Eve failed to keep and to guard the garden, the disciples failed to watch for Jesus. And they let Jesus down. And Jesus is in the midst of agony as he's dealing with the task that he's been called to. The task he's been called to is no easy task. Jesus knew fully what was coming. He could probably almost feel, uh, he could probably almost feel the whip that was going upon his back as it was shredding his flesh to pieces. He could probably almost feel the crown of thorns being placed upon his head as blood flowed down his head and down his neck. He could probably almost feel the soldiers ripping out his beard by the roots. He could probably almost feel the cold spikes being driven into his hands and his feet. But more than that, he knew something worse was coming. He knew that his father was going to turn his back upon him. He knew that his father was going to forsake him for a time. Jesus had existed from all eternity past in a trinity Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. Perfect love relationship. And He's always existed in that relationship. But now this relationship is going to be torn asunder for a time. There's going to be a separation as the Father is going to turn His back on His Son. Think about it this way. Uh, Imagine the closest person in your life. Maybe it's a spouse, a friend, some other relative. And imagine that person calls you up and says... I just want to let you know, I don't want you to call me ever again. I don't want to see you ever again. And I don't ever want to hear from you again. How would you deal with something like that? It would be devastating to you. It's something that you could never get over. And Jesus knows that's, that kind of rejection is going to come from the Father. And so in His flesh, He doesn't want to go through with it. In His flesh... He would rather not suffer all this agony. And so he cries out to the Father, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He knows the horror that's going to come for him. And when it's not recorded in the Scripture, but I wonder if there's also a battle that's going on in this garden. I wonder if 
Satan, the serpent, is tempting or attempting to tempt Jesus. I wonder if Satan's coming up to Jesus and saying, do you think that if your father really loved you, he would send you to the cross? Do you think that these people are really worth all of this pain and suffering that you're going through? Aren't you God? Can't you just call down the angels and, and wipe all these people out and then go back to be with your father? And yet Jesus is resolute. He says, not my will, but the Father's will be done. And then he's taken. He's betrayed. And then his, one of his disciples takes out a sword and is ready to do battle. He's ready to fight. Jesus says, put that away. He says, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But then how should the Scripture be fulfilled that it might be so? That it must be so. See, Jesus won the battle in the garden. He chose God's will over His own desires. He chose what God said was right over what looked right from a human standpoint. And he trusted that God had a plan. He trusted that God would be glorified and that through it he would bring a multitude to himself. And then he's crucified. The most horrible death imaginable. Something that was meant to be a deterrent so that if people saw someone hung on a cross, they would be deterred from committing crimes. Sometimes people would take days to die upon the cross as they would be hanging on the cross and gasping for air and trying to hold themselves up until the point when they had no strength left and finally exhausted, they die. It represented also a curse of God. Deuteronomy says, cursed is the man who's hung on a tree. It represented the curse of God, that God had rejected this person, that this person has done something so bad that we don't have any punishment to give this person, that God is the one who's going to have to judge this person in the afterlife. Something for the worst of criminals. And he's crucified and he dies and he's put into a tomb. But there's something very interesting about the location of the tomb where he's put. Look at what it says in John chapter 19. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was closed at hand, they laid Jesus there. See, Jesus was betrayed in a garden. And he was buried in a garden. And we know that three days later, Jesus is going to rise up from the grave, rise up from that tomb in the garden, and he's going to bring new life and new hope to the whole world. In John chapter 12, it says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And Jesus was that one who died and bared much fruit. He's the one who made a way for sinners to enter into a relationship with himself. And as he was buried in the garden as he faced this battle in the garden first the battle the first battle was are you going to follow after God's will and he says yes not my will your will and then the second battle in the grave whether sin and death are going to have the victory and he is victorious over both of those battles 
And because of that, He makes a way for those of us who believe in Him to enter into a place of abundance, a place where He dwells. And the Scriptures say that our future is to be found in a place that's described as being a garden. For God's people, uh, there will one day be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And in Revelation chapter 22, it's described as being a garden. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. These verses are speaking of a return to Eden. A return to perfection. A return to paradise. A return to a place of abundance where God dwells. The point is, Jesus' victory in the garden gives us an opportunity to return to the garden. See, Adam and Eve failed to keep God's command. They failed to uphold God's order. They failed to protect God's garden. They failed to give Him glory and to find their joy and delight in Him. And they chose to follow after Satan and their own desires. And as a result of that, chaos started to take over. Their lives started to fall apart. They experienced shame and loneliness and pain, toil, judgment for their sins. Yet Jesus followed God's commands. He submitted to the will of the Father rather than follow His own desires. And because of that, He brings order to chaos. He makes abundance from wastelands. He makes deserts or makes gardens out of deserts. Maybe some of us are here, and maybe we, if we're honest with ourselves, we say, maybe my life feels a little bit like a wasteland, or my life feels a little bit chaotic right now. The scriptures say that just like Adam and Eve fell in the garden, we've all fallen short of God's glory. Like Patrick read before, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Just like Adam and Eve's lives fell into chaos, when we sin, our lives fall into chaos. Because we've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all failed to honor God as we should. Think about it this way. So imagine I'm planting a garden. And I go to Home Depot or Lowe's or Walmart or wherever, and I get some soil, I get some mulch, and I get the most beautiful plants that you've ever seen in your life, these beautiful flowers. And I get home and I spend all the time you know, weeding the garden, I put the soil down, put the plants in there, put the mulch on top, and it's just a beautiful garden. But then I don't do anything else with it the rest of the season. I just let it go. After not too long, it's going to start to look pretty bad. By the time you get to August, the, the flowers are going to be dead. The weeds are going to be taking over. And you're probably not even going to be able to see the fact that it once was a garden. And at that point, you just kind of have to rip it up and start new and put new soil down, put new flowers down. And I think that's kind of a fitting picture of the human heart. The human heart was created good and perfect. God made it perfect. But after our first parents sinned, sin started to enter in. And each time we sin as a corporate body, as a humanity, it's almost like weeds are entering into the garden. And without the water of God's word, without someone weeding out those weeds, it turns to chaos. So it gets to a point where it's 
There's no garden left. And the scriptures say that it, goes so, it gets so bad that in and of ourselves we're dead in our sins. That there's no hope apart from Christ. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ can rip out those things in our life. He can rip out our sins. He can rip out our brokenness. And he can put his Holy Spirit inside of us and give us hope. They can change us. He can make us new. He can create a garden out of the wasteland of our life. And it's all because of his victory in the garden. It's all because he decided to follow the Father's will. It's all because he defeated sin and death in the resurrection. Todd Wilson shares a story of a rescue and a life and death situation. It's a story that comes from the 2015 uh, San Bernardino shooting. If you don't remember exactly what happened there, um, a couple, husband and wife, uh, terrorist, just kind of went into this community center. Some of the people were having a Christmas party. Um, they were doing some other things, and they just started shooting people up. And it, en- it ended up being 14 people uh, died in that massacre. But one of the people that survived was named uh, Denise Peraza. And her life was spared not because the shooters decided to have mercy upon her, but because another ma- person, a man named Shannon Johnson, decided that he was going to shield her body with his own and save her life. Listen to how she recounts what happened on that day. She says, Wednesday morning, 10.55, we were seated next to each other at a table, joking about how we thought the large clock on the wall might be broken because time seemed to be moving so slowly. I would have never guessed that only five minutes later we would be huddled next to each other under the same table, using a fallen chair as a shield from over 60 rounds of bullets being fired across the room. While I cannot recall every single second that played out that morning, I'll always remember his left arm wrapped around me, holding me as close as possible next to him behind that chair. And amidst all the chaos, I'll always remember him saying these three words. I got you. Those are the three words that God said to us on Good Friday 2,000 years ago. He says, I got you. Where you're weak, I'm strong. Where you failed, I've been victorious. And I can take you to a place that you could never go on your own. I can take you to a place of abundance in knowing me. I can take your life from being a desert to being a garden. I can take your life from being a, having no purpose, having no direction, and I can come into your life and I can give you purpose and hope and direction and go, do wonderful things through your life. But not only that, when you die, when you pass on from this earth, there's a place that's prepared for you. I'm going to make for you a paradise, a garden where you can live with me forever. For us today, thousands of years later, Some of us, maybe we never entered into a relationship with God and maybe we feel like our life has been filled with chaos. Maybe this Easter is the time that you would turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Trust in what He's done for you. Not in what we can do for Him, but in what He's done for us and simply receiving that gift and allowing it to transform us. If you'd like to enter into a relationship with Christ, myself or Patrick or Phil or... We'd love to talk to you more about that. But others of us, 
Maybe we're believers, but there's parts of our lives that we haven't allowed God to penetrate. And maybe those parts of our life are a little bit dead. But God can take any parts of our life that are dead, and He can make them new. He can bring victory to our lives. And that's all because of Good Friday. That He can take our wastelands, making them abundant. He can take our deserts and make them into a garden. It's all because of Good Friday. Because of His victory in the garden. Saying yes to the Father. Yes, I love them so much that I'm going to go and die for them. Despite what it's going to cost me, I'm going to the cross. And because of that and His victory rising from the grave, we have the opportunity to know Him now and to live with Him forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the cross. We thank You for coming to the earth. Even though it cost You so dearly, we thank You for coming to the earth to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sins, so that we might find hope and freedom in Your name, so that we might have an abundant life in You, not a life that's filled with just material things and possessions, but a life that's filled with the joy of knowing You and having a relationship with You. Lord, I pray for anybody here who maybe doesn't know You. God, I pray that this Easter, this Good Friday, would be the day that they realize the beauty of what You've done for them. That they'd realize how much You love them. They'd realize that You can transform them and make them new. Lord, for the rest of us, God... I pray that we would never get over your victory. We'd never get over your sacrifice and what you've done for us. That we'd never move on as as if that's an elementary part of the Christian life, but that each and every day it would transform us and it would change us. And that we would allow your Holy Spirit to transform every part of our hearts, that we wouldn't hold anything back, Lord. God, we thank you for all that you do for us and all that you are. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.